first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Uh, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. <laughs> Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWEP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherlode. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. Alright, this is surreal. This is weird. I'm back. Realms Deep 2020 is a wrap. It was awesome. It was simultaneously the uh, coolest and also the most stressful job that I've had uh, since we've begun this whole podcasting thing, but it was an amazing ride and I'm very grateful to Fred and to the whole team over at 3D Realms and Slipgate Ironworks and especially the people here at The Keep who I, without which I could not have done this. So like huge thank you specifically to Hadoukant, to Vince Steele and to Red Eyes Green Dragon for making the the videos happen this was a total pain in the ass and i know it almost killed hadicant and it almost killed me but we got it done so i'm not going to ramble on about that for too long but i just want to say thank you to all of you if you are uh someone new who joined as a result of one of those interviews that you saw at realms deep and are here now welcome to the fucking gun show baby this is uh this is the keep and if this is your first like true honest to goodness the keep with no strings attached episode, I welcome you because you are about to go on a journey with myself and with the rest of us as we delve deep into the minds and the hearts and the souls of some of the most incredibly interesting people that I have, you know, able to uncover. So as a fun little game that we can play together here, I would like to say thank you to you by holding a small contest. Now, you may have noticed, if you're a longtime listener of The Keep, that the intro has changed. I want to, first of all, say huge thank you to the great and powerful John St. John, the Duke himself, for doing this awesome new intro for us. But you'll notice as the FM radio scan goes through that there are several different voices that uh, pop up you know, throughout the scanning. And here's the contest. Here's the thing. Here's the gist of it. If you're a big fan of The Keep, you will have undoubtedly heard all of the episodes that I pulled that audio from. And the first person to tweet to us at In The Keep on Twitter, naming in order all of the guests by name who are featured in the intro, then I will personally mail you a little care package from The Keep. Uh, it will contain an In The Keep t-shirt and maybe some goodies if I have something left over. So have fun with that. Try it. See if you can do it. I'm sure you can. And I'll give you a hint. The last voice that you hear before mine is John St. John. So good luck to you. But yeah, um, this is a really special episode. 
I uh, didn't see this happening a while back, but you know, as I got to hang out with the whole crew, I uh, got to know Scarecrow quite well, and he is an interesting person, to say the least. He is definitely one of the smartest human beings I've ever had the pleasure of interacting with, while also being the most sarcastic fucking asshole <laughs> that you could imagine, like just the snarkiest motherfucker, but no, I love him. And I'm very proud to share this conversation with you. This is uh, just me and him chatting. I think it's about an hour and a half. And I'm not going to lie. like I won't say he made me feel stupid, but he made me, he challenged my thinking process and helped me learn. And I hope that as you hear this, uh, you'll be able to look past some of the parts where I just seem bewildered and actually kind of go on that learning journey with me. So I'm not going to yammer for too long. I just want to get into it. But, you know, thank you very much for joining us here. And please enjoy this conversation. I will now be playing some music from the Graven soundtrack, which is the game that he is currently working on. It is awesome looking. If you didn't see the footage from Realms Deep, you can go on YouTube right now and check out. So I think there's like 30 minutes of gameplay up. It's epic, man. Such a cool looking game. And when it's over, you will be in the key. Let's codenamed Praced uh, because Slipgate had the idea of a Hexen successor. They wanted you to play a priest. They wanted magic. They wanted utility magic, not just damage. Environmental puzzle-solving, environmental combat as well. Three hubs. They had the settings determined. You know, they wanted the swamp, snow, desert, and so they started building out a team. And I don't know the timeline for that, how long they were talking about it or anything. Mm -hmm. I just know that Fred reached out to me. Um, he was looking for a producer. And so I accepted it. And the ball got rolling. And we were kind of doing a design by committee thing. And I think I was just the loudest in the committee for the longest. <laughs> you know, I kept coming up with, I think the most elaborate plans and details, the most specific details. And once a lot of the producer functions were, I don't want to say exhausted, but things were, we gotten into a groove, you know, people were getting used to working in Jira. They were getting used to the notion of a sprint. And, you know, we had figured out a good labeling system and how to organize the tasks. Um, at that point, Fred spoke to me about what else I would like to contribute to the project. And that is when I mentioned design because, you know, I'd already put a lot of heart into it. And much of my time on the project was doing design rather than production work because the production work wasn't a lot, especially with Fred there. So that is when it all began. And you've, so I've been kind of like picking up little details, you know, throughout 
you guys have got like an amazing cast of level designers and people that it seems like it's quite farmed from sort of the Quake community. Like I know J- JCR is working on some levels for the game right now. Yeah. Uh, and, that would all be Chris Holden's work. Yeah. Uh, he's very, very, very tapped into that community. I, I used to be, but you know, life gets in the way. Other <laughs> things happen. And, but yeah, Chris is the lead level designer and it seems like he already had a really good feel for the design proclivities of all the mappers he picked. And so you guys are, if I understand this correctly, building things in trench broom and then somehow or another magic in them into this engine. Yes. Um, so trench broom for building the core geometry, mm-hmm. you know, the actual layout, the structure, uh, and getting a sense for gameplay flow and texturing everything. And then we use a tool called, I think it's Hanure. I'm not sure how to pronounce that because it's, it's not even a portmanteau. He smooshed together the UE for Unreal Engine and Hammer because it was a tool for using the, for Valve's Hammer Editor, the spinoff of Worldcraft, to port maps into UE4. But it takes uh, the funk groups in a map and converts them into static meshes complete with the textures. I didn't understand a word you just said, but it sounds awesome. All right. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a particularly technical person myself, but yeah, yeah it, it works. It takes some finagling. You have to find the workflow that functions for your needs, mm-hmm. but it's there. Uh, we've been pushing the limits. So uh, Eric W has been very gracious and has provided us with a kind of a split build of trench room to meet our needs because we are making very large maps. No, it's really cool just to think about because it opens up like a whole, you know, community of excellent, you know, people like who can build levels and like geometry and everything, like especially the Quake community and allows them to, you know, do something that probably otherwise they might not have the skill set to do. But it makes it approachable. You know, they can, they can create something that is functional and tools that they are very familiar with. And even if there are technical issues with migrating it over into Unreal, well, I mean, Chris is the lead. He's an experienced Quake mapper. He's an experienced Unreal Engine developer. So he's the perfect guy to help with that. And so we're getting the ability for... It sets up a context for them to focus on the more abstract gameplay-oriented designs instead of hopping straight into Unreal, where everything by default looks gorgeous and there's this propensity towards realism when you're looking at the lighting in real time and you're looking at the particle effects happening in the world and the textures animating. But when you were looking at something like trench broom, where you have static geometry and you just have textures wrapping on surfaces, you have to use your imagination, which is going to include the gameplay and the experience rather than just the, the linear product that Unreal can provide. Yeah. No, that's, this is like really confusing, but also like, it seems like a revolutionary, like this, this opens up so many possibilities that it's kind of mind boggling. I don't know. I'm just, I'm excited when, you know, when I see people that I like never thought were going to be working in like this scale of a game 
And then I'm like, oh, wow, they finally can. That's that's the most exciting thing I've heard in fucking forever. This game is huge. Yeah, (laughs) it's really, really big. How many enemies Um, did you say you guys have planned? um, 31, but I don't think that's an up to date count. So like meaning it's bigger than that, I'm pretty sure. Some of that is being, I wouldn't say scope creep as much as it is uh, myopic scope. You know, I'm, because Slipgate had a vision for this before I was ever aware of it in any way. And so every now and then there'd be little things where, you know, Fred will jump in and go, hey, how, you know, how's swimming coming along? Swimming? <laughs> uh, we're going to have swimming? Yeah. Okay, we're going to have combat in the swimming? Sure. So you need swimming-only monsters. Yeah. I'll go and design those. And I'm I'm excited about the swimming aspect of it. We've got some, I think, pretty unique monster designs. But uh, that's part of why, you know, I don't have an up-to-date count. At one point, I did tally those things, and I don't recall if it was before or after Fred said... Well, there's going to be swimming contact combat. I like in my very limited amount of working with Fred, like I, he's got a real gift for delegation <laughs> in terms of like, Hey, we need this task done. Like what? We're doing that. Yes. Okay. Just like you said, I could actually see the conversation flowing in front of my face right now. Yeah. It's like, so that, I mean, that's, that must be really like cool, but also kind of challenging to kind of have that just dropped on your plate like that when you had no plan for it. Well, it's a matter of if the uh, the plate dropping is transformative or additive. That one's additive. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's another thing to consider. And we're, you know, level designer is going to need to take that into account. Swimming routes, you know, do we want that as another way to enter a space? How do we want to use it for secrets? Do we want to put any lore down there? How much of a part of the game is it going to be? But... You know, when there's differences regarding different unspoken expectations regarding things like uh, weapon primary and secondary functions. Um, the, that was another one where at some point Fred was like, hey, where are the alt fires? And that was, again, alt fires. What? Yeah, we got to have alt fires. Oh. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, I, that, that one is transformative. I've got to go back and look at all the weapons I've designed. I'm like, okay, how do I maintain their identity, maintain their functionality while expanding upon them and keeping the enemies competitive against this? And then it comes into a question of with the alt fires, there's also the upgrades. Uh, and are those upgrades, once again, are they, in this case, would they be iterative or transformative? You know, um, when you say upgrade, that to me, it connotates iterative. You are increasing the gradient of its capacity. You are not changing its direction. You are not changing uh, its angle. You are simply making it stronger, so to speak. And it doesn't have to be damage. It could be fire rate. It could be accuracy over range. Um, versus transformative, like weapon mods, like in Doom 4, mm-hmm. where the shotgun is, oh, now it's a grenade launcher. You know, that's very much unlike a shotgun, actually. That's a very different weapon, but it makes you able to do more without doing a weapon switch. And I prefer Engraven making it to where each weapon is a solution to, I wouldn't say a given problem, 
but it is a tool for navigating through a circumstance. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, anytime when you have to add new tools to your belt, that's a alternate fires are definitely an excellent way of, as you said, not having to switch through or in, in, in this case, you know, go through your inventory or anything like that. And so you mentioned it, you know, this is like sort of a Hexen inspired thing, but I mean, how, how much is that going to mean in terms of combat, right? So is it going to be fast paced like Doom or Hexen was, or is this more of like a, cause I'm seeing like sword fight and th- that sort of thing. Are the enemies going to try to fence with you or are we, we talking actually, about walking into hordes? Probably not hordes in particular, partially mm-hmm. because, uh, just the pathfinding cost and the switch port comes to mind. Mm-hmm. But I might be completely wrong there uh, because I, I do not know the the actual capability of the Switch. I mean, you can look at the specs, but uh, Greg, our CTO, however, could probably tell you exactly how reasonable a design decision is for porting to the Switch. Um, but hordes are not really a focus. We actually do have explicitly a fencing opponent. Uh, it's the gesture of the decrepit court, and it's basically it's a skeletal gesture. He's got a rapier, and he flanks you, and he cackles and rattles. So there's a rapier skeleton who f- tries to flank you? Yeah. Okay. So, I don't know, that's really interesting because I'm thinking about just the the flow of combat and everything that that's going to be pretty fun. I, I don't want to end up in a situation and I'm sure you guys won't fuck this up, but like, you know how in doom eternal, like it, it feels very much like th- there, there are all these mechanics and then there's only like maybe one enemy that really takes advantage of that mechanic. Hmm. So like, for instance, like the Marauder to me was the only boss that seemed to require you to use the, you know, the weapon switching, and the ammo management in the same way. Right? Whereas there are other bosses in the game that are quite like a uh, like a God of War, like an old school God of War, kind of like, you know, just yeah, ta- task uh, by task fight that enemy. In the case of the Marauder, though, you only need to weapon switch if you want to go quickly through the fight. If you don't want to go quickly, you can just stay on, uh, what do they call it, the Ballista now? I still think of it as the Gauss Rifle from Doom 4. Right. But uh, yeah, the ballista, I believe they call it. Just switch to it, and it's I'm playing traffic. You know, red means stop, green means go. Go is go fire at him with the ballista. Then he turns red again. Ballista's ready. He flashes green. That tells me to shoot again. Uh, honestly, I prefer the uh, was it the Doom Hunters? They called them the guys with the the energy shield and kind of the platform that they were riding on. Mm-hmm. as well as the tyrants. I found those fights more interesting because their damage potential was potent. Uh, but since there wasn't a binary circumstance upon which to attack them, uh, it was more free form. So in Graven, there will be, you know, like, so we've already discussed, like, you know, there's an enemy that requires fencing. Will there be enemies that specifically require you to fight them in a certain way? Like uh, you have to use your magic for this one, or you have to, use, I don't know, it looks like you guys have some sort of handheld crossbow type situation going on, or 
Oh, we've got a wrist crossbow and a, mm-hmm. a normal crossbow, and we've got a weapon called the crossbar, which is akin to a magical shotgun. Mm-hmm. And who doesn't love a magical shotgun? Um, I would say that it plays more in the ways of an, an ebb and flow, so closer to it's between Quake and Hexen in that regard. Uh, Hexen doesn't, you know, it's not as fast as Heretic, and I know people say you know Heretic is just it's Doom with a medieval skin, but mm-hmm. there's a bit more to it. But in Hexen, you know, each class has four weapons, so they've got twelve weapons for the whole game. You only ever see four. Um, but you've got your free weapon, you've mm-hmm. got your blue mana spender, your green mana spender, and your blue green mana spender. Um, we ha- we do well, blue and red mana, which is completely different. Uh, you know, but it's still just having two different types of mana. But our weapons utilize physical materials and mana, sometimes both, uh, just depending on where they are in the upgrade. And what we want is for players to come up with their own ways to solve uh, circumstances and to not feel that they have to fight everything, but it's going to be advantageous too, because that's going to give you some resources, but it's at a risk. And also you're trying to quell evil. You know, you are playing an objectively good hero. There's uh, the Shades of Grey hero, I think, is definitely an overplayed approach and is less interesting than it sounds. I don't know. Let's let's dig into that a bit. So what what about like a like an anti-hero or a hero that is morally compromised is uninteresting to you? It's partially it's very common. Okay. It's it's just it seems like I'm always running into it in film and TV and literature. It's just, well, this person is they I think that people mistake complications as complexity. And I don't find a morally compromised character to be inherently more interesting because in many ways they're going to bend a lot in in their circumstances. You know, imagine you've got a a difficult kind of like a, a canyon to navigate through. A morally compromised character is more fluid. And so they're going to just flow through the canyon. Uh, And so long as it doesn't take too many tight turns, there's not going to be an issue. They're able to basically just go forward. A more rigid character, because they are less compromised, is going to have more conflict in the canyon. They are going to run into the physical obstacles, the moral obstacles, because they are actually holding true to their convictions. And not looking the other way, they're going to have a harder time. Yeah, so it inherently it's more difficult to you know operate by a code of conduct than it is to just do whatever the fuck you want, basically. Yeah, it's it's tougher to not go, I didn't see nothing. I'm still an alright person. I didn't see nothing. You know, just looking the other way. And you know, I recall that being a thing in high school. And that was the standard prerogative when you went into the the men's restroom. I, you know, I had, there were some rough rednecks in my high school. And the key thing with them is you didn't see anything. And if they knew that you had that mindset, there wasn't going to be any trouble. You weren't going to tell the teachers. 
I don't even want to know what it was they were doing by the way you're describing it. Honestly, it was, I think, mostly just cigarette bartering and such. But yeah, you know, but they were going to get in trouble for it. So they did not want to get in trouble. So they would make trouble for me if they thought I was a, a threat there. I don't think that's a particularly great example of a uh, a moral obstacle, but it does show a case of where going with the flow. You can dis- you could describe that uh, externally as this well, it's a compromised moral character, mm-hmm. but the result is I just went to the bathroom, and that's not a great story. I don't know, I, th- I feel like people in a lot of cases sort of relate better to, you know, a protagonist that, mm-hmm. you know, it feels human. So no, the idea is like, you know, no one's perfect, right? So if you want yeah. to, you know, show someone a character that they can really relate to and, and see themselves in, then you'd show someone who has in some way, you know, made mistakes or is capable of making mistakes. Whereas, uh, and this is actually quite important to the storytelling of, you know, something like Graven, I think that, you know, you want to play, as you said, as a character who is inherently good. And that that can be also quite fun because you're I don't you're you're playing as a as a hero, and most people kind of don't you know, they don't see themselves as a hero, and that's the point of playing a game to them is that I want to be something that I can't otherwise be. Yes. Okay. Uh, pe- people often can confuse video games uh as power fantasies but what they are is potentiality fantasies you will have opportunities to be a hero at some point in your life maybe not in the way a video game does it however the thematic tone the consequences before and after will be different partially you know a world like graven doesn't exist yeah it's vaguely medieval but it's not our medieval world well, no. I mean, assuming that there was, you know, magic and none of these monsters existed, then yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> well, I, I'm. I did. I think possibly this is going to sound uh, arrogant, but mm-hmm. I'm told I am. So I guess that will be true to brand. Um, one of the things I did in the work on Graven was uh, writing up a cosmogony and a basic metaphysics for the world that it takes place in. And it was something that I've had to explain to people uh, is just, you know, this doesn't take place on Earth. It's not an alien planet. There isn't an Earth in this universe. This is a different universe, and it is completely materialistic, which is why it makes sense to shotgun the bad things, because that will ontologically defeat them. In the case of, you know, Doom, well, you're shooting the demons, but they're demons, so... What does that really do? Ah, it's fine. Uh, we can't go, ah, it's fine, because we're going a little bit deeper into the subject matter. You know, we're, we're not skimming along the surface and using it as a, a context for what you're doing. You know, your character is a priest. He is not a Marine. He's not a random guy. He is someone who his, his life's work is in the metaphysical. It is in the moral and the ontological reasons behind everything. So in this, in this universe, um, everything is material and the creator, because it is all material is very distant. Uh, It is uh, the distant watchmaker benevolent yet can seem uncaring because, you know, 
loves his creation, but part of that is loves how it plays out. Right. And your survival of the capital punishment which you receive is the completely unprecedented intervention on his part. Because he has a problem. I'm not going to say what that problem is. I want that to be gradually unveiled through the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because your character is not morally compromised, though he is sometimes emotionally compromised, he got the capital punishment due to a fit of rage, but it was a righteous rage, you know, witnessing his adopted daughter on top of an altar with a fellow priest holding a dagger over her. You know, that's, that's going to tick off someone who is a good person. That, you know, that sends him into a, a righteous rage that creates the consequence. And the fact that it created the consequence of capital punishment demonstrates that, though just a human, just a person who has flaws and shortcomings, when the going gets tough, he doesn't yield. Well, the god looks at that and goes, hmm, that might just be the right hammer for this nail that's been sticking out. So in in this universe, right, uh, because you are a priest and you are morally good, then there comes the question of, like, when does killing become okay? So is it it's righteous then for this person to, you know, kill bad people? Oh, that's something he will have to... yeah. Uh, settle for himself but i mean there is the fact that for the most part you're dealing with monsters okay uh, creatures of sorts uh there are multiple cults in the game they are human however they do have a an operative uh moral violation in terms of those they interact with right you know the the undecaying the rebirth the Mycelians all have some degree of unprovoked aggression with those outside of them. And they are happy to take advantage of the shifts in power that are going on during the story. Yeah. I find it really, it's like one of my favorite kind of ideas and topics to explore is that, you know, how morality is different for different people in different cultures. Um, For instance, like look at the history of like the Catholic church. And I'm not saying that you're, priest is you know a clergyman of the catholic church by any stretch of the imagination but how when you know the romans brought catholicism to europe and then you have all of these sort of different pagan cultures right um so for instance let's just talk about uh the celts and uh the don't want to call them vikings heathens as they call them you know they have a tendency to kind of label them as like well they're not us so then they are wrong and in this case you're you're the way that you explained it kind of makes perfect sense in that you know they are there will be some clear moral violation of these you know what we're calling cults such that it makes it uh, very clear and that they are evil but it's something that a lot of games kind of go into is like well you can just throw cult you know they're in a cult and then they're you know, that makes them an enemy. They worship something that we don't believe in here, so that makes them an enemy. Yeah, when does cult stop being cult and become culture? Right. Yeah, yeah that's it's, really cool. It's not a a, a cultural disagreement. Uh, you know, the undecaying who bury their greatest warriors alive in peat bogs to preserve them, so as to use them in the future for great battles. That's 
even within consent, that is definitely morally questionable. Uh, take that into account the fact that they also pilfer and loot and steal and murder from time to time with a degree of intelligence because they don't want to bring down uh, military action from mm-hmm. the broader society of which you are a part. You know, that's those are not good people to have around. Yeah, it's, you're really making me think harder than I intended to. <laughs> I'm this sorry. is good. No, 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 no. That's what you do, man. You're one of those guys. No, I, uh, I'm just thoroughly fast. I'm already, I haven't even touched the game yet, and I'm already thoroughly fascinated with like the inner politics of how it works. So that's, you're doing a great job of selling it to me. I'm hoping you, uh, you like the build up towards the reveal of the antagonist. So. I'm excited I mean, about that one. It's not that I don't think it's a great antagonist, but I think that the we don't get enough of the we don't get enough mystery regarding the circumstances in games. It's just you start the game, there's the bad guy, chase him. And conveniently he tends to get tired of running right about level thirty. Man. No, that's true. Like there's so many different not just games, movies, whatever, where it's like a you know, from the onset, it's like you immediately know, like, that, okay, here's good, here's evil, now go kill that evil. And then the, there's no further character development required. And sometimes there's a twist. Oh, John, right. you were the demons all along. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I tire of that, frankly. Um, like, well, no, I, did, I didn't purchase this game to be the demons all along. You know, I, I purchased this game to be in this theme and have this relationship with the environment. Um, One game, and I'm not even sure what lesson I could extract from this, but one game that had an interesting moment for me uh, that wasn't ham-fisted because it wasn't my decision. My character wasn't doing this. A different character who I do not play as did it was actually from a Call of Duty in Modern Warfare 3. Um, They there's a situation where there's been a terrorist attack in London and you do a mission where you are, you know, they track down the, the weapons dealer who supplied the gas that was used for it. And you fight your way up into his hideout and you get in there. And one of the friendly NPCs, it, you know, goes into a cut scene and you've all got gas masks on. He doesn't. And the friendly NPC pops a canister of the guy's own gas. And he's asking him questions. And, you know, the the whole deal is, you know, you, you tell us what we want to know. You get a gas mask. And so there's a very obvious pressure because the gas is a natural phenomenon. It isn't the pulling of a trigger, which is someone's decision. The room is actively filling with gas. And so it creates an immediate timer and the guy is starting to sputter, and he eventually starts getting giving information, and the NPC gives him a gas mask, and he's safe. And then the NPC says, this is for the boys at, and I don't recall the name of the training facility, and then shoots him in the head. Um, I just found that, that dynamic interesting. Because um, you could argue, well, that was an evil action, and it definitely was not morally good. Um, 
but it did give them the information they needed to save more lives. And you can debate whether or not the weapons dealer here was, in terms of operative morality, was compromised already. You know, he knew that the, you know, whoever he sold this gas to was not going to use it for a good deed. But in a situation like that, like, so you're, you're playing as the, you know, protagonist here and something like that happens in front of you in a cutscene. So like, take something like, um, uh, telltale their games, right. Where you have these situations where you're like timed and you have to make a decision about what you're going to do. So in this situation, from the way you're describing it, you can't intervene. Like, so you, as a moral character, you have to make a decision about what's right to do for right now. So are you going to let this happen in front of you or do you do something about it? And that those are, that's a case of the product being a different product. Mm-hmm. You know, call of duty, what they are advertising to you is a story. And then within that story, the opportunity to engage in specific types of combat, that's the simulation you get the verisimilitude or verisimilitude, depending on how you want to pronounce it. That is what you were experiencing as the benefit of getting the money telltale it was about that decision it's not about the combat it's not about moving through the world or exploring things it's about facing those decisions and making them right and honestly when you look at uh, the fidelity of any of these triple a blockbusters them developing that many iterations in terms of moral decisions would explode their costs. Um, we, we wouldn't get them at that fidelity level. You might be able to at triple a or single a, but at double a or single a, but not at triple a levels. You know, those are, those are different products. But in Graven, you will always be doing the right thing from the, from the scope of the story. To an extent, yeah. Um, okay, but you're also you're not going to a warlord's hideout, you know, <laughs> where he did an arms deal with someone who gassed people in London. And in many respects, it is closer to you know heretic hex and doom, whatever. In that, when you're in a combat situation, the people that you can encounter are the ones that it is fine to engage in combat with. So there's not like you're not going to be able to pull out your staff, I guess, and shoot Stefan Wadey, uh, old man character or anything like that. You won't even have that choice. Yeah, well, he gives you the staff anyways. Yeah, okay. That's awesome, man. You've uh, really, I don't know, you're, you're really challenging my uh, concepts here of how I inter- internalize storytelling, which is good because I want this game to do that for me. I want it to be fun. Frankly. <laughs> I know. Like it's one of those things of, you know, these are great conversations to have, but in terms of what gets made, I am, you know, there's a few principles I want to hit. Um, I, I don't want there to be a twist to uh, your character or to the God. I like for those to be pillars of the game. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm more concerned with, Hey, I want to have these different types of damage and I want the armor to function like this and the falling damage to function like this. You know, I want to hit that sweet spot in terms of simulation and fun activity. You know, you cannot run forever like you can in quake, 
but you can run and you can run pretty fast. And I think it feels fun right now, the current speed, mm-hmm. you know, going out into a sprint and then jumping and crouching at the peak of your jump to clear uh, a vertical obstacle feels good. Not the most realistic thing, but that sort of limitation isn't that fun unless you're going really into the simulation level. And at that point, you know, you're making Arma and we're not making Arma. One of the things that immediately popped out to me is really funny and not grounded in realism is like a, when when you, at least in the gameplay I've seen, when you're doing spells, you literally like hold your book in your hand, right? And then you shoot, you know, whatever the magic is that you're using. Yeah. And the juxtaposition of like, I'm, I'm balancing this book, so I'm going to do a spell. I'm going to pull out a book, flip to the page that the spell is on, and then do the spell all in the, you know, heat of the moment. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, it's that's not a realistic thing, but it would... You don't want people to go, well, I'm not going to use the spell now because it's going to slow me down too much and I'm going to get right. killed. No, you want them to use the spell knowing that spells don't do much damage, but they change the environment. Whereas in like, a, you know, arcs, for instance, you have to kind of memorize the patterns in, in order to do the spells. And then if you want to, you know, do a spell that you don't have memorized, then you would have to like escape the combat situation, rememorize it, or, you know, you can use this, the storage mechanic or you can save like i think two or three spells and then just kind of bust them out as they go but you yeah. can't just you know infinitely throw spells at people and yeah. in this situation we're assuming that this priest is like some sort of incredibly fast speed reader and also has the hand balance <laughs> to do this it's really cool man though it look I mean, it, it's aesthetically appealing too yeah and that's part of it is you know that classic shot of Hexen 2 holding the book open you know Mm -hmm. that book just it still looks great in its own way and I know a lot of people had those images in mind and we wanted that same imagery but the spell isn't doing damage or at least not much what matters is what's doing to the environment and to the circumstances and in the case of arcs you know part of the game there was the fact that you had to memorize the spells that was part of the game that they're serving up Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're not doing that. Um, someone else could make that game. And well, with Ark, someone has made that game. So then to get further into it, I guess, like, are you, does this priest already kind of like walk forward? Or are you going to be like picking up and learning new spells the whole time? Oh, you know, you're going to be okay. finding spells. Not, the whole, not all the time. You know, it's yeah. not good you're not going to get an avalanche of spells. There's not that many. What we focused on was making them have a broader array of functionality. Uh, For the vertical slice, we have you start with two. Uh, You will not start with two. You'll start with one. And you will gradually uncover them. And if I remember correctly, two of them are not on the main path. You can miss them if you don't explore substantially. It's gonna be really cool. And are any of the uh, spells or weapons like integral to you know traversing the landscape? So, for instance, like in you know Gloomwood, they're having this like harpoon gun that you need like to you know go up into you know different parts of the buildings or whatever. Like, can we expect any of that here, or will it just be kind of used as weapons and nothing else? Not for well, I wouldn't use them as weapons. I'd use them for setting up improved circumstances. Um, okay. 
So you've seen one case where a spell is required in the vertical slice. You have to use the inflame spell to ignite the peak canisters to turn on the lighthouse. And that's why we have the little spinning icon in the chamber showing the actual spell icon of, hey, use this one. You know, make sure you use this spell. And if you don't recognize this, maybe you'll think to look at your spell book or you'll notice that icon in the bottom right corner of the HUD. Um, an example that I, because one of the things I did when writing up the spells was also writing up example use cases. Like, okay, there's a hallway and it's got some sort of treasure at the end and you want to get it. But when you get close, uh, the ceiling does pounding crushers, like three of them, thum, 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 and they're really fast and you can't get through them in time. Well, there might be a retaining wall nearby and it is reinforced. It's holding up all this rubble and it's reinforced with uh, iron bars. You heat those up to make them weak and then you whack it. You know, you break through them and the, the rubble falls and water spills out and the water is now going through that area. And so it's, okay, great. Now I can get crushed with my socks wet. But if you then freeze that water, you have reduced the friction through the area, and now you can move faster through it. I love that sort of like environmental puzzle solving. That's excellent. I enjoy it as well. I mean, it's fun. Um, the thing to look out for is to take into account that your the way your brain works differently from others, so can't really make those the hard limits. You know, mm-hmm. you can't to get at the end of that hallway. That's a uh, it's a bit ex- it's a bit specific, and it's expecting people to put together multiple pieces. And this isn't a matter of intelligence; it's a matter of what sort of pathfinding your mind uses through obstacles. Yeah, it can be really simple too. Like it in Shrine Two, there's a, a level called the the River Sticks, where you know you have like this poisonous water, and you know you have to get you know across to like another island or piece of land in order to progress. And it takes a while for the character to recognize because it's not a game that like really, you know, you don't have like magic spells or anything, but you do have a a gun that shoots ice. And until that moment, you've never used it for anything other than shooting enemies and turning them into ice and then breaking that ice. But in this case, you make little, you know, ice platforms to walk across. Yeah. And yeah, that it is really difficult in a lot of situations to get someone to, you know, put two and two together if you don't tell them. Well, especially if up until this point, you've not been giving them math problems at all. Hmm. If up until that point, they've been able to walk forward and shoot the bad guys and generally get through. I mean, we try to set up some expectations in Graven with how the first quest goes and that. Uh, so we've got the whole journal system where the priest will update his journal, which will basically be a way for us to communicate various things to the player. And so it's like, hey, I need to set something on fire. Maybe this book can help me with that, which is basically, yeah. hey, look in your spellbook. You have a fire spell in your spellbook, and you need to set something on fire. That's, I think that's an excellent way to do it while still billing, being, you know, immersive and not, you know, handholding. Because as you said earlier, it'll you'll have like little flashing icons that say like maybe the you know this spell like to do this sort of thing or this this object requires a certain thing. It's like a subtle reminder without 
saying like, you know, not having an NPC walk over and be like, Hey, you should do this. Guy pops up from the other side of the wall on the level boundary. Use the flame spell. Yeah. You can do it. Or worse, just having text pop up and say like, do this. That's fun. It, It makes even the process of solving the issue still more immersive for you to be like, Oh, well I have to, you know, open up my book and figure this out and, Maybe maybe that'll help me, that kind of thing. That's that's a good way of looking at it. As opposed to, you know, as I said, you know, having it just thrust right into like do this, do that, or whatever. Doing a very poor word uh job of putting my words together. I need more coffee, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. It is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. Yeah, yeah. Boil it down to two words. I like that. Oh, that's uh two of the pillars that I usually try to use when I'm analyzing a system or a system of systems is, is this trying to describe something to me or is it trying to tell me how things should be? So how did your time working in doom and quake, like kind of develop who you are now as a game designer, Uh, as a game designer. Okay. That, uh, well, we can talk about you as a person too. (laughs) Well, um, I guess that applies to both cases. Uh, As a game designer, partially it was just encountering the cultural resistance to um, where people insist that even if they love Quake, they'll say Quake is Doom with polygons. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, Quake and Doom. Yeah, they're the same game. Oh, I like games like Quake and Doom, and other games are just like that. Quake and Doom aren't, aren't the same game. And it's not even a thematic thing. They they play pretty differently. Uh, Doom is, in some ways, a visualized uh, top-down shooter that is running on a D&D rule set in terms of the mindset for how things are processed. The amount of randomization in that game. You know, there's a lot of dice rolling, so to speak. You know, that Revenant missile can do 20 damage or it can do 60 damage. That's a huge spectrum. Um, whereas in Quake, most everything is deterministic. Uh, what is random is things like the the AI's decision making, the uh, within constraints, the spread shotgun pellets, whether or not the AI flinches when they take damage, and uh, the actual value of an explosion blast radius in terms of the damage that it outputs. Uh, otherwise, the game is very, I want to say, rigid. But, you know, you click with the shotgun, you're calling fire bullets and fire bullets is a, you know, it calls that six times with this spread. And so you're operating within those pretty narrow confines. But regardless, the the shell value, a single shell is worth 36 damage in Quake. But if you're using the super shotgun, the shell value is worth 84 damage because it fires 14 it makes 14 fire bullets instead of six because it's actually more than twice as powerful, but it has a wider spread. It's very determined. Okay. Sorry. No, that's stuff that uh, the vast majority of people, including myself would never even take into consideration. You're thinking about it on a much deeper level. Whereas most people just see it as like, I shoot enemy. (laughs) I have weapons. Enemy reacts. I shoot him again. That kind of thing. Well, it's uh, it's partially whether or not essentially the game has its clothes on. What does the mm-hmm. game look like with its clothes off? 
look at any game and imagine uh, that take a screenshot of any game. Um, imagine it without the skybox. Imagine it without the out of bounds areas. All right. Take out the set dressing that doesn't have collision. How important was that in terms of your gameplay experience, in terms of your decision making? Um, and people, they get focused a bit on the fact that in Quake and Doom both, you're shooting bad guys. Uh, and yeah, they're bad guys and you're shooting them and you're reducing that, co- that entity's health value to zero. But the relationship is pretty different because in Quake, you frankly, you're working with known knowns. And in Doom, you're working with unknown knowns. You know, you, you know the max and the minimum value that an enemy's attack can do, but that is such a large spread that you cannot predict. You can guess, but you cannot predict because it is running on a, a fixed random number table that a lot of different systems are using. And so, though technically you could predict it with tools analyzing the game, as a player, you're not going to go, well, that Baron's projectile is going to do 52 damage this time. With Doom, it's it seems to me more like, especially in the more enemies are in a room, like it, it's a matter of not necessarily accounting on, you know, how much damage they'll do or anything like that, but navigating around them and choosing what order to take them on. Yeah. And right. part of the value there is, and this is, it might even be a symptom of the low frame rates of machines at the time, but projectiles travel slower. And it's one of those things that I noticed with Doom 4 was all the projectiles are so fast that I could actually, you know, they say, you got to keep moving. You stop, you're dead. And it's like, well, no, no. You, you stop and you're fine so long as you move one foot in the next five seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can actually stay in place for a while in that game because the projectiles move so fast that you move out of the way just slightly because they're also perfect in their accuracy that you have completely negated it. But an imp fireball in Doom and Doom 2, it travels so slow, even with perfect accuracy, that it is occupying the potential world space that you can be in for a while. And you can actually run a loop around that imp and still get hit by its fireball because you ended up returning to where it was going to land. Correct, yeah. So how did that... I mean, we we got the, you know, from a level design perspective, but like... Yeah, How I does, down that rabbit hole for a moment there. So I'm glad you did. Realizing uh, that perspective difference and having those two games as an example of how many similar designs can go in different directions kind of, I don't want to say informed me, because it was more subconscious than that, but it shaped how I think about games in terms of how the same people can make similar decisions and end up with rather different results in terms of what actually happens. I mean, it's the, I don't know if I would say largely the same development team, mostly the same development team though, between doom and quake. I mean, the, the main variance is, you know, McGee coming in and doom two and will it's coming in and quake, but it's still mostly in terms of design Romero and Peterson. And they've both made rather different games since then. You know, you can compare some of them, but I'm not going to compare Empire of Sin to Ravenwood. Is it Ravenwood Fair? Is that the name of it? The 
the Facebook game that Romero did. Mm-hmm. Similar perspective, different genre. You know, Sandy Peterson with you know Age of uh, Age of Empires they did with Ensemble Studios. Doom and Quake is a good example for how you can take. This is going to be a really weird analogy. Let's do it. Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. How many different ways can you combine refried beans, ground beef, whether or not tomatoes and sour cream are there, and cheese? How many dishes can you make? And in what proportions? Proportions? Uh, sequence? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's partially in how you assemble it. We've all had the burrito where you take a bite and it goes, welcome to sour cream. <laughs> There's nothing else here. It's just sour cream. That's a poor burrito because they made it on the wrong axis. And in that regard, I think a lot, and I want to say that as in I'm smart, but as in I can't help it. <laughs> you know, I can't help but look at systems in games and break them down. You know, I see them as a complex rather than a complication, which is a complex being lots of uncomplicated things that are interacting with each other. That says a lot about you as a human being, though. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> is that, I can see how someone might say that like that makes you arrogant, but it really it just makes you you're gifted in this ability to analyze things. It certainly makes me a bit tone deaf when it comes to uh, the appropriate context in terms of speech. And it also makes it hard for me to pass up a good dad joke. I'm a, I've actually kind of been this whole time disappointed <laughs> in a way that you haven't dropped any on me, but that's okay. I mean, it's uh, people will often say it's like, Oh, go make a pun. I'm like, you don't go and make a pun. Puns are pivots based upon the conversation that's happening. Right. The the way that you are breaking this all down and analyzing it is quite different, you know, than most people would do it. And that that is your gift, and that's why you would make such an excellent, you know, designer or developer or however you want to put it. You know, anything that you chose to do, it could have been video games, it could have been uh, creating machinery, or engineering of any kind. You probably would be successful at it just a matter of garnering your interest and pointing it in the right direction. Maintaining focus. Really? Yeah. I, intention, attention is definitely a deficit for me in many regards. And smartphones have been the bane of my attention for sure. <laughs> At one point, my wife was actually just like, are you playing a game while you're playing a game? <laughs> yes. Yes. It's a loading screen. So I pulled up my phone and now I'm playing a game on my phone while I wait for this level to load. So what is it that you're bringing to the table with Corticade? I don't know yet. Uh, I'm still learning the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got access to Ivar's design documents. I am reading through them. I don't want to step on his vision. You know, right. The idea is that we are helping. We are building upon the game, making it a bigger, better game, but it's still Ivar's game. And so... I want to make sure I know it well before I start going, you know, hey, we should add a jetpack. That's actually kind of my stereotypical example of bad design of throwing features at a wall and just gluing them together. 
but you know, right now he was talking about the consumability of uh, different aspects in the game in terms of your ammo versus your hacking materials versus your healing materials. And I was suggesting a degree of, and this was coming from an entirely outside perspective. It'd be cool if you could go to a merchant and buy uh, exploits based upon the software that they are running. Mm-hmm. And so you're basically buying script kitty thumb drives, but they only work for a little while. You've spent your money, but they only work for a little while because these corporations, they're going to patch their software. They'll find the exploit at some point and they'll patch it out. So you need to take advantage of it now. So, so as to basically make the hacking mini game from just resource consumption to something that it's an opportunity. Do you want to take it or not? You know, this person might not be selling that thumb drive again, uh, but when you do acquire it, you've got to use it before it's too late. In in terms of like things that have recently been, you know, published or in development, you know, with you guys, uh, 3D Realms in particular, it's really cool to see like these different types of projects happen in tandem, right? So Graven was, where did the original idea for Graven come from? Well, I answered that one a while ago. I know, but like, think think about that, and then think about how the difference between you know the origin of Ion Fury versus the origin of Wrath, right? So yeah. you have a you know a game that was like, okay, we have a, a set of ideas that we would like to do. We want to do it in this engine, and like, bada bing, bada boom, hire a team, make it happen. And then you have something like Wrath, which is you know, something that was already kind of being worked on in like someone's dream project that they're like going at. And then they pick that up and like, or let's, let's curate this and get it, you know, to, to continue to have your vision, but be the best iteration of that vision as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's very much the brainchild of Jeremiah. Right. And so what I'm hearing now with, with Graven and with, Cortique is kind of a similar story. And what I'm saying is it's, it's really cool to see that the way that it is so seamlessly, well, it's probably not seamlessly from your guys' perspective, but this is done so well. And to have a company that can respect that and see that for what it is, is quite beautiful. I'm sure Fred will appreciate the sentiment. (laughs) Talk to Fred about it when I talk to Fred again, but yeah, you've seen what he's been doing behind the scenes as well with realms deep that outreach that he's been doing. Mm, yeah. It could have easily just have been, Hey, we're going to show a video on a stream that should get a decent number of views. You want to do it? Okay. Okay. We did it done. It, that could have been the extent, but it's not, uh, I'm not going to go into that because I don't know how much Fred would like to share, but I think it's very cool. Very nice. Very good. What he has done in regards to those relationships. He's just like, um, I think very, very much like myself. I think that's why we get along so well is just that it's, it's more about doing something for the sake of it being awesome and then putting, you know, kind of like good karma out into the world and then reap the benefits later. It's, it's not doing it for the sake of like, let's get a certain number of views or let's whatever the fuck, you know, so do, yeah. do it for the sake of the art. And that's fucking awesome. I had no idea that they were going to pick up, you know, Cortique. I don't even know if they were looking at it before because I, I asked Ivar, like, hey, do you want to be involved in this thing? And then 
he sends in his trailer or or in the background i have no idea and they had already been looking at that the whole time either way it's fucking awesome yeah i don't know when they were aware of it uh i know that fred and dave were both aware of uh Portique and at the time Fallen Angels now. Is it Fallen Aces or Aces Fallen? It's Fallen Aces now. Fallen Aces, yeah. They were both aware of those projects, at least during Realm's Deep. I don't know if they were aware of either beforehand. Um, so I don't know that timeline because that's not, I wouldn't say it's not been transparent. I wasn't in those conversations. So, right, right. Not for me to know. But I, that's a long winded way of getting back to like, I enjoy hearing your perspective in in terms of how like you're approaching Ivar's project differently. You're like, well, I want to preserve his, you know, his idea of what his game will be. And I'm analyzing it to figure out how I can help him figure that out. Thanks. <laughs> that's, I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of a similar story with wrath in that regard of just, you know, I was aware of the project. Um, for me, it was, oh, it's that project that Killpixel is doing. I recall right. him asking for help on the inside 3D forms uh, way back in the day because it's mm-hmm. been floating around for a while. Um, and then I found out that he had a newborn baby and that just that caught my attention. It's like, well, he's got a dream and he's got a child. And that child deserves his dad's dream to come true so he can be the best dad he can be. And I reached out to him offering my QA skills uh, at the rate of, I want a copy of the physical box. I think that price was pretty good for them. Because I was just, I want to help you with this. And that's how I came onto Fred's radar. So when you see something like that, you know, it put on your QA goggles, like what is the first thing that you're looking for? How do you determine like what your place is in terms of, uh, you know, helping them realize that vision. Uh, it's partially, it's, it's a mixture of just asking directly, Hey, what's the tone you want here? What is the experience you want the player to have? But beyond that, it's a case of what is the breadth versus what is the depth to get a sense as to the complexity Mm -hmm. of what I'm undertaking. Um, so as to make sure I'm not doing a completely surface level job, which can happen easily if you don't know the full scope of something. I've had projects where I was asked to do QA, but they wouldn't tell me about an entire axis worth of data points. And so I would be skimming the surface and it can feel like you're doing a, a solid job, but then you actually or you did a really shallow job and you missed a lot of core issues. Sorry if you're hearing background noise from the house. That's fine. That's part of who you are. You have kids. It's okay. Those kids have volume. (laughs) But it's just like a, so you as a person, right? Like you're this deeply analytical person with your own opinions about, you know, this, you know, you've already said many of them, like, this is something I do to like, this is something I don't like. And the idea of, having your feedback on something could be really beneficial, but also like you have to measure your shots in terms of like, well, even though this game may be, you know, going in a direction that I just don't think is good. You still have to kind of put your piece there and come to peace with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if I don't think I can, you know, I can withdraw from the project. Yeah. 
in the case of core decay, one of the first things in the main document was Ivar mentioned verisimilitude, which is important to me. So that immediately got me more excited for the project. It's like, oh, good. I don't have to sell you on that concept now. (laughs) I've really unexpectedly almost learned a tremendous amount from uh, just hearing how your mind works throughout this whole conversation, man. I don't know how to respond to that correctly. <laughs> you just say thank you, and that's awesome, and I appreciate spending time with you. <laughs> or or not. It doesn't matter, man. Um, I just, again, like I just can't thank you enough for sitting down and taking the time, and thank Jahar, you know, for, for being that link of friendship between us and all that, and this was like sort of interesting like how it all came together. Jahar I couldn't, is everywhere. <laughs> I couldn't have imagined where, you know, I was a year ago to what we've just accomplished, you know, in this past week or so with Realms Deep and the gravity of <laughs> what this all really means to me. Because I didn't expect to be, you know, interviewing the creators of Graven. I didn't expect to be sitting here uh, learning how how you <laughs> differentiated uh, the mechanics of Quake and Doom, and like how you were, you know, and in, informing yourself on what that means for the other projects that you're working on, like that. That is so bizarre, and it really harkens back to what you said earlier about how you know one little tiny shift can have an exponential result or an exponential uh, exponentially different result in the future. Yeah. So this is beautiful and this is like quite surreal. I'm just happy to be here. All right. That's an example of how you respond to that, by the way. Yeah. Well, you're also <laughs> much more charismatic than I am. <laughs> it's okay, dude. You have your own charisma. Your charisma is just usually through text. Hmm. Unfortunately, real life usually isn't through text. Uh, it's all ones and zeros, man. Hmm. I don't know about that. Mm, you- but I'm sure someone will tell me about it. <laughs> you were talking about how I have lots of opinions, and it's like, well, I have lots of my own opinions, but I have lots of other people's opinions as well. We take a whole lot on faith that we don't think about. You know, it's a lot of uh, implicit reputation when you read something and you accept it as true. You are having faith in institutions and individuals behind it and making assumptions based upon that. Someone can go through high school and They've learned a bunch of things, and then sometime in their early 30s, they pick up a book like, and this isn't even a critique of the book, but like, lies my teacher told me, and they'll believe it. They will believe it from a perspective of authority on saying that the previous perspective of authority was being deceptive. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of faith in learning and, uh, what you retain and what you operate off off of in terms of the heuristics that govern how you see the world. Regardless, like one thing can't exist without its, you know, its opposition. So like if you're writing a book about something, that book, you know, and its perspectives couldn't exist without what it's criticizing. Good can't exist without evil. You know, your, your protagonist in your game can't exist without its antagonist. And it all, just like anything else, like it meets together in the middle and they cancel each other out. And, you know, we're all spiraling around the galaxy towards the center of the same black hole. Um, 
Uh, <laughs> I'm not really. There's no point there other than just to say that what you're what you're saying is in fact true. I to parts of that I would say no. <laughs> well, okay, let's hear it. But well, just the notion that everything is based upon uh, equal opposition. Um, it's kind of it becomes a zero sum dynamic, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that the belief is wrong, but that the belief requires different presuppositions for how things are for it to be correct. And what needs to be evaluated is whether or not those presuppositions are correct. Uh, otherwise, you're you know you're arguing over the species of a tree based upon uh, a small stick coming off of one of the smaller branches. Yeah, I mean, the notion of good versus evil, for example, is, well, what is, is it good to exist or is it good to not exist? Uh, depending on which one you land on, would that, would something, if it is good to not exist, would existence be evil? Eh, not necessarily. Just because something opposes it doesn't make it a complete inversion. We don't know the, the axes of functionality that are being inverted. I like that nothing's black and white with you. <laughs> Except for black and white. Those are pretty clear. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being here, brother. I'm going to end this before I get too confused. And, uh, we didn't uh, even get to Doombreaker. Well, if you want to talk about Doombringer, I'll cut the part out where I said thank you so much, and we'll just talk about Doombringer. Tell me more. In a way, I really don't have much to say. I'm just a mapper for that one. Yeah, but it's cool. It's a fucking dope-ass project. It is cool. It's cool it's a great that team. it's so incredibly competitive in the multiplayer side, and yet you can then hop into the single player and use the same skill sets against AI. Traditional AI, too, which I like. So what do you mean by that? Meaning that they're not trying to replicate humans. It's not You're not mm-hmm. fighting bots. You are fighting video game monsters. You know, they're not running to pick up items ahead of you, and they're not lining up a sweet rail shot. They are creatures in a a simulation of a world, and you are an intruder. It is weird in terms of, like, the, you know, the original idea to where it's become now, because, you know, this idea of let's make a single-player experience with sort of the mechanics at least similar to what has traditionally always been a multiplayer game, right? So... It's strange how it started out that way and then evolved over time and it has come full circle at this point. Yeah. Well, I think it was inevitable with Christus at the helm because he's a phenomenal single player mapper. Right. And when you've got that in you, it's hard to not make single player maps. So like Quake originally was like, okay, we have this single player game and then you take exactly those mechanics that have evolved over time, but you put them into a multiplayer environment. Same could be said for Doom. and then you have the way that this has evolved. Like I said earlier about how it's, you take the the mechanics of like a quake live type game and you put the, like take that backwards, put it into a single player game. How does that look? Yeah. Uh, In the case of quake, you know, that started as this weird fantasy RPG based around, you know, is it Mjolnir? Is that how you pronounce it? Thor Samer. Uh, I've heard it pronounced a ton of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd say ask a 
someone from Iceland, how to pronounce it. I think there's actually a YouTube channel where this woman in Iceland clarifies these things, but, uh, but it, it changed substantially. And that's why it has all the medieval motifs to it. Um, and at the end of the day, they said, let's just put doom like weapons in it, which is kind of funny because they made something that at a glance looks like doom, but is so very different. And it's in a lot of little ways too. simple things like, Sometimes when you shoot an ogre, they fall on their butt. And then, I guess, like, so when you're designing a level for this game, how do you take the mechanics into context and put them into, like, actual combat scenarios with an AI? Um, I don't. The first thing I try and do is make a level that is fun to play without combat. Just finding your way from the start to the end without it being linear, giving the player uh, sight lines to places to explore and to wonder about. Like, I can't get there yet. I see a little bit of it. I wonder what else can be of that. I think a good single-player level is fun without monsters, though. That's really uh, different than you hear a lot, because a lot of people will design their levels around the combat scenarios. like. Uh, okay, this room will be here so that you can have, you know, this enemy and this encounter at this time. I think that you can iterate that in mm-hmm. to a level that is already fun without enemies. Um, you can take an existing room that's already interesting and add in a couple of pillars with some cracks in it that allow for little sight lines so as to give you the opportunity to dodge an enemy's attack more effectively particularly if it has some homing capability or such. It's hard to go back to make it fun in general without the combat, though, when you've already designed for the combat. When you've designed for the combat, you take away the combat, what was that room? What was the value of it? And it's not just in terms of the theme, you know, not what did they do before it was a video game level in this space. Um, just why would you want to go in there? And in the case of the first level of uh, Doombringer, which I did, uh, there was a there was a previous first level, but uh, it was frankly it was better as an E one M two. So I basically told Christus, "Hey, let's." No, I don't actually recall the exact exchange. He might have proposed this for all I know at this point, but we shifted his levels up by one in the count, so his E one M one became E one M two because he had keys and pushing buttons and such. And I was like, all right, I'm going to make an E1M1, and I'm going to make sure that you understand walking before you get into a fight. I'm going to introduce you to the weapons. I'm going to make sure you can jump across a gap. You will have the opportunity to push buttons to change the environment. You won't have to do it. And I'm going to make sure that you understand that in the single player, there isn't fall damage. That makes a tremendous amount of sense. And something I guess don't really think about but yeah designing the room before you design the combat makes it feel a lot more natural because as you said like why would i go in this room otherwise like if we're assuming that this room existed and that the combat just happened to take place in this room rather than yeah and it's not simply a case of realism it's it's just a case of making a fun space and a fun space is more than the combat that happens in it. And it's more than the art that you get to look at while you're in it. Yeah. You know, some areas are annoying to walk through in a game, you know, K 
staircases, too many spiral staircases. You get tired of the horizontal motion with the mouse turning. You know, that's a case of an area being not fun to navigate, but a little bit of that is kind of cool to shift it up. You know, well, there's a switch back here with this grand staircase. And that can be fun. Like just that simple motion. And also it's one of those things of in the moment, you can also be thinking about other things in the game. That's a moment to reflect and learn about the game. That's when the game becomes a thinking game is when it gives you the opportunity to think without it being costly for you to do so. But. Huh. (laughs) So when you explain that to Christus, who already has this like pretty laid out idea of how he wants his game to work, how does, how does he take that? And maybe that's a better question for him. That would be a much better question for him. I don't know his mind on that. Yeah. Um, It's not a conversation he and I have had. We, you know, he, how I got involved with that was on the, the tasty spleen server. (laughs) He mentioned, he was like, Hey, I'm looking for mappers to help me with this project. And I joked like, Hey, I could help you map. I've got two maps, you know, ha ha. I've barely done anything whatsoever. It's like, okay, well let's get a link. And so I sent him a link to my one proper Quake map release. And he messaged me and it's just, hey, I had fun playing that. That's my largest metric. Uh, see the other map. And so I linked him to my Doom 2 map. And he liked it as well. And he's like, well, that's what I want. I want levels that are interesting and fun. So, okay. Well, I'll give it a go. <laughs> and so I started out. Uh, and at that point... Well, not not even. I'll give it a go. He's like at that point, he sent me a build with the the single player implemented, and I played it and was like, "Hey, this is." I had fun. I had fun just running around. I had fun fighting, and I actually wasn't familiar with this Doom maps at the time. I knew his name just from lurking on forums for you know the past twenty years. You know, he's a bit of a legend for good reason. I've since played his Heretic wad, which was tremendous. Um. But I really liked his maps in Doombringer, which was really my first encounter with him. And so then I started working on what is becoming E1M5, which I finished from my side of things. I do, I do a layout, I do a block out, and put in entities and some rough combat and lighting. And then he goes through and applies the visual style, which sometimes is pretty fanciful. You know, I had um, I put down a concrete slab as a bridge. And he goes into Blender and he makes a complex unfolding bridge system that brings up uh, side railings and everything. And that's there now. <laughs> that's really, I don't know, man. It's just really amazing how that marriage comes together. Because it, like the game won't, <laughs> the game won't be what I originally thought it was based on what you're telling me. This is really cool information to know about how it's being designed. And it's just mind-blowing how deep you can think about it. It's just, it's a case of prioritizing level design as one of the chief virtues of a game. Yeah. Um, And that comes at the cost of other things because, you know, there's, you lose a degree of simulation when you sacrifice um, some of the theming for the sake of gameplay. Or you lose freedom in that regard. And I'll actually go back to call of duty on that. It's multiplayer maps. 
uh, for a long time, the Call of Duty multiplayer maps were kind of the last bastion of traditional level design. Uh, these are guys sitting in Radiant doing gray box brush blockouts of interesting combat situations, and then they go through and then they make it match with the theme. You know, they apply like, okay, this is a war-torn city, so they paint the whole thing like a war-torn city, but you will lose freedom in matching the theming and having the gameplay still work by the fact that you've got to put up some pretty arbitrary obstacles in the mm-hmm. theme. Like, well, typically you go through there, but there's a crashed helicopter there now. They're using that as a wall. It's a more interesting wall. And how does that, like, so what's different in your in your idea of, like, that's the last bastion of traditional level um, design? Well, it, not that it is, but that it was. Right. And it, it has since recovered. And the fact that for a few years there, that was pretty much the only place where we saw traditional level design approaches where those maps are fun to move in and you could throw monsters into them and make them fun. You you could take a layout of a most call of duty multiplayer maps, port it over to quake or doom and have a good time with it because they're made as gameplay spaces, but they wouldn't work that well in a simulation environment because they have too many restrictions because they decided to compromise the inherent freedom that is communicated in the theming to protect the gameplay by putting in things like arbitrary burning cars. Okay. I think I'm following you now. Okay. <laughs> Sorry for a, a winding trip. That's what I wanted. <laughs> as long as you had fun in the progress without any monsters in the first place. Yeah, there were no monsters other than yourself to worry about. So, Yeah. That's the whole point of having these conversations is that, you know, hopefully myself, most importantly me, <laughs> learn something from it and then... Hopefully, there you know the audience finds some value in it, and this has been a tremendously valuable exploration of how design and mechanics and thought processes lead to something fun to play. That is your gift. It's part of economics, you know. What does the exchange rate happening? What are the exchanges, and what's the scarcity of the resource being traded? It was no very one. rare to encounter someone who can boil down fun to a formula. And I wouldn't think of it as a formula. Um, it's more of a, a philosophy in a way, not to yeah. sound too artsy about it, but it's things like, what is the player feeling? Uh, and I'm not talking like, you know, emotional NUI. Rather, things in, in Doombringer, the, the Bolter does 25 damage per shot. Well, the first enemy you encounter has a Bolter as well. It does 25 damage per shot. If you don't have armor, it's four shots to kill you. You get shot three times, and you've, you get hit one more time and you're dead. And that's really actually not all that fun. It's not interesting. You're at 25 health. You don't feel, you know, obviously you're at low health, but you're not ripplingly low health. You're not terrified of everything. Uh, and I suggested to Christus to make it the game harder, we actually lower the damage. 23. At 23, you get hit once, you're at 77. I'm still alright. Get hit again, 54. I'm above half, I can take it. Hit once more, 31. Things are getting a bit chancy. 
you actually take five shots to kill instead of four, but that means that now you have the opportunity of sitting at eight health. You're still only one shot away from death, like you were at 25 in the previous uh, value, but there's a lot more tension there. And you're giving the player the opportunity to be in that tension. And it kind of goes back to things like the projectile speed in Doom 4. An imp's fireball isn't as threatening when it travels fast if you can step out of the way easily. That is fucking genius. <laughs> well, I hope others feel the same. I hope people feel a nice degree of tension in Doombringer and in Graven and in Core Decay, and they get that that beautiful relaxation of tension and then re-immersion into it that is so wonderful, that sine wave of experience that sometimes hits you with a uh, a saw pattern. I love it. I'm going to walk away from this conversation, probably not smarter, but with a greater <laughs> understanding of how that, that subtle of a thing can completely change it. It's kind of been the theme of the whole deal is you're, you've explained to me in many different ways that uh, a little change like that can greatly affect the outcome of the project. Just like a sine wave, like pinch of time versus a pinch of rosemary. Or as I said, a tangential conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I love tangents. Uh, I am going to go uh, see what my wife wanted, and I will sell, like, say now thank you again. I don't know how many times I'm going to have said thank you, but I'll edit some out if it sounds too much like a <laughs> ass kiss. Well, thank you. Take care, Thanks brother. for having me on. Anytime. All right, thank you very much to all of our wonderful supporters, Dots, Moose, Paul, Zach, Alexander, Brad, Nine Owl, Tones, Jeffrey, Larissa, Nabe, Steve, Jazzcash, Donkey, VJ Tengen, Hadoukant, Brand Flakes, Moleketrarao, Red Eyes Green Dragon, Anthony, Robert, Vince, Immorfer, Igrak, Simon, Gilmosan, Russell, Void Inc., and Jack. Big thanks to Jack, who recently became a $50 subscriber on Patreon. What the fuck, dude? You have the biggest one. You're fucking awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you're enjoying your little care package I sent you. It will never be able to repay your generosity, but hopefully it uh, means something to you. If you would like to be a supporter of The Keep, you can head over to inthekeep.com. We have many different avenues. You can find it all on our support tab, or you can just buy some merch. I will tell you right now that if you do buy merch uh, from our merch store currently, you will be an elite few who have that particular merch after a short while because there will be changes made soon. I also recommend that if you are interested in being part of a community... Join us on Discord. The link is right there on our website. Come be part of the group. We have all the time multiplayer games going on, pickups, just fun hanging out with the crew. You might run into me, and I will uh, do my best to be nice to you if I'm in a good mood. Kiss Kiss, you guys are amazing. I love you. The Drowned God Cathala loves you. Stay in the keep.